Hi everyone, hello and welcome to BAFTA Master, uh, Masterclass, the craft of games writing. That's a good start of tripping over my words already. Uh, my name is Giles Armstrong, my pronouns are he and him, and I will be your chair for this evening. Um, before our fantastic panellists introduce themselves, a couple of quick formalities. Uh, the session will be closed captioned live, which is quite amazing in my view, uh, to enable those, should you want them. There should be a button on your UI. Uh, I'm not sure about mobile, sorry, but if you're on a computer, waggle your, your mouse over the screen and there should be a button for those there. Thanks for putting those on, that's amazing. Um, right. It probably goes without saying, but all views and opinions expressed during this session are those of the people expressing them and do not necessarily reflect the views of anyone's employers, clients, or indeed BAFTA. Um, and everyone speaking tonight is currently working on some amazing projects, but we're mostly unable to talk about any projects that are in development. Uh, so released games is pretty much what we're gonna be covering this evening. Um, for everyone who's watching, you can use the Zoom interface to put forward any questions you may have. We're due to take questions towards the end of the session, uh, and apologies if we don't have time to get through them all. Uh, we've already had quite a few come in, and we've only been going for a few seconds now. Uh, now, while most people hear BAFTA and think of awards, uh, BAFTA is actually a charity whose ongoing mission is to inspire, enable, and celebrate talent from across the screen industries. Through its many initiatives and through masterclasses like this one, BAFTA hopes to foster discussion and provide insights for the next generation of talent. So here to provide insight, no pressure, are our panelists. You can now reveal yourselves, you can get your video started. There they all are. Hi, everybody. Um, so uh, Shella, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, my name is Shella Ramanan. I'm a co-founder of Threefold Games, which is a micro studio. And um, we just released last month. It's August now, isn't it? Yeah, last month we just released our debut game, which is called um, Before I Forget, which is about a narrative game about a woman with dementia. Um, I'm also a narrative designer at Ubisoft Massive um, in Malmo. So hello from Sweden. And I'm a co-founder of Pockin Play, which is an organization dedicated to increasing the representation and visibility of people of color, both in games and in the industry. Amazing, amazing organization. Um, Ian, hi. Hello, uh, I'm Ian Thomas. I am the founder of and a partner in a company called Tailspinners. Uh, we're a um, an outsource story studio. So we help out studios of all different sizes with story and anything from narrative design through last minute editing and, and panicking and all the sort of things that happen during production. Um, and I'm also a story lead at Frictional Games, also in Sweden, uh, on their latest game, Amnesia Rebirth. Amazing, thank you. And Sarah? Hello, I'm Sarah Bayless. My pronouns are she and her. I'm the lead writer at Larian Studios. We are a uh, company that works on CRPGs. The most recent release we had was Divinity Original Sin 2, and we're currently working on Baldur's Gate 3. Fantastic. That's a heck of a lineup, I'm sure you'll all agree. Um, and uh, yes, so as I mentioned as well, I'm Giles Armstrong. I'm a writer who's been working in the games industry since 2007. Uh, I've worked on more than 50 titles to date in various capacities. Currently, I'm lead writer on Destruction All-Stars, 
which I can't talk about. Uh, and among previous projects, I was a senior writer on Horizon Forbidden West, which I can't talk about, uh, and lead writer on the Spectrum Retreat, and edited the English script for the BAFTA-winning My Child, Liebensmord, which was done as part of Tailspinners. Um, so let's talk about things that we can talk about. Uh, I wanted to kick things off by asking the panel how they go about outlining a story for a game. Um, now, we've already got some questions that have come in about breaking into games. Uh, so just up front, this isn't that panel. Uh, if you are interested in getting started as a games writer, then uh, there was a recent Writers Guild panel, which, disclaimer, I was on. Um, that's on their YouTube channel, and there's loads of resources on Google. This is more about once you're starting as a games writer. So we're going to start off, as I said, outlining a story for games, um, which I know I've done many times, but in terms of the projects that you're all dealing with, they're so varied and so different. Uh, I was wondering, actually, Ian, if we could start with, with you and talking a bit about uh, your moment design, uh, moment-based design approach. Sure, it's it's a, just a fancy name we, we hung on something that we, we do. Um, we deal with stories of all different sizes and shapes. Um, and the, I mean, it, it varies massively, but the process that we've come up with, which seems to work, and it works for things other than games, but works really well for games specifically, um, is a thing which kicks off quite early into the project. Uh, generally, people will have some idea what the game is about, roughly. They'll, they'll have an idea of the genre they want to, it to be part of. They'll have an idea of um, protagonists and that sort of thing, but nothing in any sort of depth. And they might have been experimenting with mechanics and experimenting with, with art, um, but nothing is set in stone. And often at that point, we get called in to say, well, we've, we've got all these ideas and we can't make them into a coherent story. So what we do um, is we sit them down for two sessions um, because you need time to think between the two sessions and in that first session we essentially rip apart all the ideas that they've got and we turn them into, um, for argument's sake, let's call them um, post-it notes. I'm sure other notes are available. Um, and uh, we, we turn them all into the, what we call moments which are uh, Think, tend to be things that we want the player to experience. Now that can be a particular scene, it can be a particular emotion, it can be a, an application of a particular mechanic, um, it can be the opportunity for something to happen to the player, but generally it's a grab bag of um, moments that you want the player to experience and have a reaction to. Uh, examples could be, you know, hanging on by the skin of their teeth at the edge of a cliff might be an idea that somebody had. It might be the moment where your best friend betrays you. It might be a moment of, of, of complete loneliness. And it, it doesn't need to be a set piece. It doesn't need to be a, a little snap or anything like that. It can be a, an ongoing progression of a feeling or a sound or, or really anything at all. And we take all of those moments that um, all of the stakeholders, if you like, in the game, the, the creative leads uh, of the game, um, bring all that stuff together along with the mechanics. And we break them all into these little piles. and we talk through each one because then everybody in the group has an understanding of what everybody else was trying to achieve by that thing. And by the time we've gone through that, already 
patterns are starting to emerge um, because uh, we are storytelling animals, humans, and we start to impose these, these patterns on what we see. Uh, but we go away, we break for the night, um, we think about it a lot, and then the next day we start trying to put them in some sort of order. And it's already really obvious where some of the things go. The betrayal has to go there because before that, uh, they, they're really friendly with this person and so on and so forth. And you can see how it all starts to flow. And it, it, at that point, it's shaping itself. And it can be uh, a standard sort of structure that people would expect, the three act, that sort of thing, but it, or it can be something completely different. Um, and there will be, it'll become really obvious that some things just don't fit anymore and aren't quite in, in line with whatever he's doing. And a theme tends to emerge. And by the end of that session, we've got the main beat points lined up um, and people have an idea of the core of the game, what it's actually about, what the underlying theme is. Um, and that's, that works pretty well for us as a skeleton that then the bones of the, the, the game story itself is, and is hung on and the characters are designed to fit that story rather than writing the characters first and then yeah. trying to trying to find a place for the player. That's, that's something I was going to ask as well, is, is do you find that the, the creative leads tend to come in with a strong idea of what the theme might be and then either stick to that or sometimes it, it's, it's changed by going through this process? It's very rare where we have people approach us who are very clear on the theme of the thing they're trying to sell. It, it does it does happen, but it's quite rare. And very often it changes during the workshop process that I was just talking about. Um, but themes are really hard to pin down generally uh, in any form of writing. And, and often it won't come out till, you know, several months of production, if at all. But we hope to come out, out, out of that process with at least a rough idea of, of something and something to start aiming to, even, even if when the game is being built, suddenly somebody goes, oh, no, it's, it's about this, isn't it? And that yeah. happen, can happen at any point, really. Sure. And likewise, Shella, with um, Before I Forget, it's, it's, first of all, congratulations on the rave reviews. Cause that's, Thank you. It's, it's, I've seen, uh, was it New York Times? Had an amazing write-up. Uh, yeah, the LA Times. LA Times. Yeah. yeah. Different times, but still good. Yeah, the other coast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with, with Before I Forget, as you said, it's, uh, it's a game where you, you play as someone who, who has dementia. Uh, in, terms of, in terms of your starting point for that, was it a similar thing where you're looking at kind of key moments, key experiences, emotional takeaways, things that you want the player to experience? Or was that kind of more defined by the practicalities of, of a very small team size? Um, a little bit of both. Um, so it was a game jam game. So that's um, a really good way to like nail down your story <laughs> extremely quickly. <laughs> so actually the arc of the story didn't change that much. Um, uh, we, you know, we always had the house. We always had Sunita with dementia. Um, you know, the layout changed just uh, of the house de de depending on what we needed. And it was basically, um, iterating on it there was a lot of iteration and things you know we'd play it and things would be missing or something wouldn't make sense um and also i did some prose writing um which no one ever sees apart from the artist i i go to the artist and the additional writer to actually write myself into the characters you know some of the scenes that um that aren't in the game i or they're sort of like vaguely mentioned, you know, be a letter alluding to something. 
Um, so basically, and, basically the text version of concept art, I guess. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because, um, you know, essentially it's a love story. So you have to believe in this romance. So I actually wrote their sort of meet cute, like what, what did they think of each other when they first met? And then that sort of fed in a lot of things into, into the game that would then, that we, we could drop in other places. Um, because as the challenge with, um, before I forget is, A, we're trying to represent dementia sensitively um, and not exploit it as a sort of gameplay sort of mechanism or tool, or it doesn't become like some weird super power or supernatural device. Um, so there was a lot of research and we had medical consultants to help us with that. And also talking to the medical consultants helped us a lot in terms of laying down the timeline for the game. Like when her, how old she is now, how young she could have been when she got started showing symptoms of early onset. And then those two ends of her dementia really helped us know when certain things would happen in her life when, you know, you know, she would have had to have left her job by this point and you know so things like that yeah so i'm guessing that also would have helped in terms of again like creating those moments and and i guess finding the the structure of the game um and yeah. in terms of in terms of your approach to to narrative design you know so um for folks at home who haven't heard the terms differently uh games writing tends to be focusing more on the things that are said, the the way that scenes are described and unfold. Narrative design, correct me if I'm wrong, Shadow, because you do this a lot more than me now, um, <laughs> is is kind of more about how you tell the story in more interactive ways or in kind of less screenwriting specific ways. Is would you say that's correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's about how the story is integrated into the gameplay. So yeah, yeah, it's the the yeah sort of how like what tools you're using to tell the story. Like, is this going to be a cutscene, or is this going to be a puzzle at this point? Is there a boss battle? Um, so those sort of gameplay beats and how they um, sort of reinforce and support the story. Yeah, and I, I guess those key considerations remain as well in terms of how do you want the player to feel and then figuring out how to evoke that feeling using the tools at your disposal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was interesting hearing Ian, how he, he breaks it down um, into sort of parts. And we actually did that. We had a spreadsheet, um, an emotion spreadsheet. Um, so yeah, so there were feelings we wanted the player to have at certain points. And then it helped us get an overview of when we were leaning too heavily towards sad or um, you know, scared or happy. I don't think we were ever leaning too far towards happy, but <laughs> um, yeah. So um, yeah, so that really helped us get a sort of a map of the game, uh, the, well, a map of the player's experience, basically. Sure, sure. And Sarah, in terms of uh, your work with Divinity Original Sin 2, uh, on which you were the lead writer, yeah, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so mapping out uh, all of the emotions and the journey for, for one character must be, is, is difficult enough. Um, there's a lot of playable characters in your game. Uh, where do you even begin in terms of outlining? Is it a case of figuring out kind of an end point or again, kind of think about emotional takeaways or is it the moments in between? How, how do you even begin with something like that? Yeah. Um, 
that game was interesting in that we did have the uh, six, I believe, yeah, six or five who um, playable characters and writers on the team had specific ownership of each of those playable characters. So um, I read the character Losa and each of the other uh, main characters in the game would have like belonged to another writer and we very, very rarely wrote lines for each other, very rarely kind of um, shared the load of the origin stories. So that already helped that each person really understood the character and kind of had their uh, very close relationship um, with that character and knowing how they would react in specific situations, um, how they would say specific lines of text, all of that I, I feel was very um, personal and very much tied to the person who was working on them. So how we would kind of go about that from the beginning was um, to think about the character's traits, think about who we wanted them to be, how they were going to kind of complement the other personalities in the story we were making with the characters that already existed. Um, I think another way to go about that, I think every writer would probably tell you something a little bit different. Everyone has their kind of own way in. Um, for me personally, it's thinking, what do I need to say? What do I need to express? What do I need to work? Like what's bothering me? What, what can I explore through the vehicle of this character? And kind of coming to it from that angle helps to kind of keep the North Star of that character always accurate. Um, it's hard to veer off when you're the North Star of what you're making, when you just have a good idea of um, what's on your mind. That doesn't really change. <laughs> and it, 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 uh, if, you, if you kind of pick, pick a question that's big enough or pick a, a feeling that's big enough that can sustain you through um, a whole production cycle. Yeah. And then uh, does that then influence kind of how you would design an event? So for instance, one set piece, would it be a case of approaching it thinking, right, how does, how's this character going to struggle with this? How's this character going to struggle with this and this character and this character? And is that how you would kind of build those set piece events or, or would it come from a, a different consideration? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'd say it's a combination of both. So you have your core story of the game, what you want to happen in the game world, um, that even if someone chooses to completely create their own character from scratch, this is what's going to happen in the world. And then you'll also add in events that will be unique to the character that you're creating, um, particularly designed to explore their story or um, explore a specific aspect of their characterization that you're trying to uh, uh, delineate, I guess. Um, and when it comes to the kind of big set story pieces, those are really interesting because they're there anyway, and you have to think to yourself, what would my character's unique take be on this in this environment that's not perfectly catered to <laughs> showcase their personality, or whatever the case may be. Um, and I think that kind of constraint allows you to learn about the character as you're making them and um, have it be, I feel like they're real people. <laughs> so I feel like it's um, having them show themselves to you as much as making them uh, when you when you create those things side by side. Yeah, uh, I guess, um, Ian, one thing I'd be interested in, in asking as well is, uh, do you sometimes start with a log line? This is one of the questions that have come in, so I'm just going to ask it directly. Uh, I hope I'm saying your name right, Z pieces, maybe Z pieces. Uh, do you or have you used the approach of setting a log line for the narrative before delving into the beats of the story itself? And has that been beneficial? 
occasionally, uh, and sometimes projects come our way that that have a, a, a theme expressed through a logline incredibly clearly, uh, and you can see where it's all going to go, uh, and that acts as the North Star, um, as Sarah said, uh, for, for the project, really. Um, but it's, it's pretty rare, uh, and that's often because um, when the project comes in, it tends not to have been thought about from a writing point of view in much depth. Uh, a lot of games start, uh, start uh, of the sort of things we get involved with, um, aren't writer driven. And so they start with uh, a mechanical idea or a setting idea rather than necessarily a, a kind of thematic idea. Uh, but it does happen uh, and it, it helps massively when, it's, when it does happen. Yeah, and Shadow, I'm guessing as well, as you said, with before I forget, beginning as a game jam game, I guess having that kind of logline approach is is probably quite key, right? Just because of the the condensed amount of time that that game jam games are created in. Yeah, and I guess part of being a really tiny indie team, <laughs> you have to kind of have your elevator pitch type. You have to, have, you know, we had to have like a really solid idea of our game world so that we could ask people for money. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it helps drive the sort of creative process as well. But yeah, when you're indie and you're, you're small and it's a side project and you need funding, it's also really essential for that. But um, yeah, so it, it serves, serves two purposes. But um, yeah, definitely. And I think we were lucky just because, you know, it's um, like, it's a really tight idea that people get straight away. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. playing with dementia. So. Yeah, I, I should also say for anyone who's not familiar with the term, uh, a game jam typically is uh, a fairly short game, usually that's created in a very very short time frame. So frequently it'll be a forty-eight hour uh, game jam, and you'll start <clears throat> with a theme or an idea that's given to you, and by the end of it you'll produce a short game, uh, which you can then go and do interesting things with, should you wish to. Uh, such as making it into a game that the LA Times writes about, which is <laughs> amazing. I've got the right coast this time, that's good. Um, so, I mean, in terms of outlining for games, obviously it's different for every project, it's different for every platform. Um, you know, a, a game like uh, Florence on iOS, and I think other platforms now, um, is probably going to have a very different approach to something like, say, God of War, in terms of constructing that story, because different player expectations, different market expectations. Um, but one thing that I'm really interested about as well is how a story is tested, because basically, whenever you watch um, like behind the scenes things, say for a Pixar film you'll often see that they test the story out by creating animatics, screening it in front of people, getting scorecards and things like that. In your experience on, on projects that you've all worked on, and someone's gonna have to jump in on this one, um, how, do you, how do you test that the story's working? Um, and if it's not for any reason, whether it's the full story or, or just a moment, what kind of course correcting is possible? Does anyone want to jump in on that one? I don't mind jumping in. Um, I think there's kind of two parts to this. The first one is uh, playtesting and iteration, which seems obvious, but I, I think 
coming to your game over and over again as much as possible with a complete player perspective, playing the game as a player is going to experience it um, is really revelatory. And surprisingly, um, surprisingly easy to kind of push off because you're so busy working on the actual game itself that taking your time to really sit down in a completely player-like context to play through it um, is actually easy to, to procrastinate. But every time you do it, you're like, oh my gosh, this completely doesn't work. Or, oh my gosh, like how has this been in the game this long? I should have changed in stages ago. Um, so that's really useful. And in that, I think as well, there's a lot of um, self-trust. You kind of have to, uh, th there's this quote I love from Robert Persig, I think it is, that like the, the test of a machine is the tranquility that it gives you. And it has to make you feel tranquil or else it's not done yet and you need to fix something. And I feel like in the games I've worked on, that's how I felt. You just, when you play it and it's right, it just clicks, it's, it just feels good. Um, and then the other half of that is um, kind of the opposite, which is allowing other people to play it. You suddenly realize all kinds of things are missing or don't have the right link or they presume player knowledge and you weren't aware of it before. So I think kind of both of those things in tandem um, is what works <laughs> for me. Yeah. Um... Ian, as well, if, if uh, I see you nodding along, I, I'm guessing there's a lot of shared experiences there. Yeah, um, there's, so there's a there's a few different places I think it, it, testing can help. Uh, one of the things that I have seen is um, it's a bit disconnected from the whole experience. But if you are working with a very uh, a, a thing with an awful lot of choice and variance in it, you can test the story in a much, much simpler choose your own adventure style form um, in some sort of interactive text, just to, to make sure that you're catching all the different decisions. Um, choice of games have a, uh, their, their scripting language, Choice Script, has quite a, a nifty tool where you can run the whole game through using random choices over, say, a thousand or 10,000 iterations, and it'll tell you if some of those lines got hit or not. Um, for example, if your choices don't make sense, like you can only get to this choice after you achieve this other choice, but actually in some way they're self-contradictory. So it can help you with that really, really complicated logic. It can go, we never hit that line. And you go, oh, I need to make sure they, they have to have 40 gold instead of 50 gold to hit that point. So just from a kind of mechanical point of view, that's really useful. Um, from the point of, of testing and play testing, um, we've uh, done what Sarah said uh, very much. Uh, what, what I found really useful um, recently uh, when you put it into the player's hands or into beta testers or alpha testers' hands, for, for a starter to record what they're doing, because that's useful for bugs and everything as well, ideally to record their faces, ideally to record people who have experience of live streaming games, because they tend to talk. And they tend to talk about what they're thinking about when they enter a scene. They tend to talk about the knowledge that they've got. They speculate on what they might want to do or what they might not want to do. And as somebody creating that game, as you watch through afterwards, you're going, oh, they've come up with this theory, but that's not true at all. How did they get to that? They haven't got the right theory that I wanted them to. They're not feeling the right emotion that we wanted them to feel in that scene. And, and, and that can, as Sarah said, there could be a lot of assumed knowledge that you as the game team, of course, it's obvious that that thing is true. Why didn't the stupid player get it? But, but after 10 playtests, none of the stupid players got it. So you've probably got to fix it somehow. So that uh, just people with verbal diarrhea um, recorded uh, next to the video is really, really handy uh, trick trick to get some some really good feedback. You're making me think of that Simpsons meme where Principal Skinner's like, no, no, the kids the kids can't be right. 
uh, I'm misplacing <laughs> it completely. But um, uh, Shella, in terms of, uh, I keep on coming to before I forget because. I'm not sure which other games you're allowed to talk about, so apologies <laughs> to uh, other people who are, if they were hoping for anything else. Um, did you did you have any moments when working on the game where parts of the story just weren't landing for any particular reason? Um, say, as Ian was saying, like the the player just wasn't wasn't quite getting something, uh, or I guess in this game perhaps that could work in its favour in terms of reinforcing. The, the idea of, of experiencing the confusion uh, that, that I know I, I experienced when I was playing the demo. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, there were, there were a couple that, you know, there was one, um, the ending bugged me forever, like the poor team, poor Claire, she'd do another build and, you know, I was distanced enough from it, um, from the, you know, just doing the writing and the narrative design that when I get a new build, it'd be quite fresh to me because um, it'd be audio stuff laid in or something. And um, I'd be like, yeah, cool. Oh, this is in there now. Oh, that really works. And then I'd always get to the end and be like, oh, the ending still doesn't work. So there, there was that internally that, and then I'd go back to the team and like that ending's not working. And I think it's on me. So I'm trying to figure that out. But in terms of players' responses, um, so the demo, yeah, it was quite, it was quite interesting. Um, the demo that you played has that toilet loop where she can't find the bathroom. And the first time we took that to, it was just a tiny Comic-Con at the top of my road in Taunton um, in, in the UK. And the table was free. So we were like, it's not our audience, you know, for our sort of sensitive game about dementia you know like a comic-con for the sort of stormtroopers and wookies and stuff but we'll take it anyway and see what happens sure. and um it was actually we actually got a really great response from people of all sorts of ages um but yeah i noticed that players got frustrated because gamers are used to winning um and obviously sadly with dementia you, you don't you don't win so um so that was something that we took away and we, um, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. So we can kind of play with the sort of power fantasy dynamics that games kind of teach gamers that that's, you know, you go into a game and you beat the thing. Because people would do the toilet loop and they, she wouldn't get to the, the bathroom in time and they'd come away and we'd say, oh, so what did you think? And they're like, yeah, I really liked it. But so how do I get to the bathroom in time? You know, is there a way or did, did I need to do something? I was like, oh no, um, she has dementia. So, um, you know, you don't win at that. And yeah, it was like interesting seeing them sort of grappling with that um, sort of, yeah, so that was a delicate balancing act that we had to do was, um, you know, having that sense of confusion, but still having clear goals for the player. Um, and so there was a lot of environmental storytelling that sort of um, we had to introduce to keep things clear and um, sort of like audio sort of um, like the keeping a clear player pathway using audio and things like that. Um, but yeah, definitely seeing people play it was invaluable. Yeah. Um, I remember asking the exact same thing because it was, uh, I think, EGX Res when mm. When I played the demo, and it, it wasn't it wasn't so much a frustration of oh I didn't beat it. It was more just would it have been possible? And, yeah, and yeah. It was it was it was it was genuinely it was a powerful moment 
to to have that kind of typical game uh, power taken away. Um, mm. I, I think it was fantastic. And I guess in terms of showing the game publicly and testing it, you can see that that moment's working and working and working. So that's yeah, that's yeah. going to be really useful. Um, yeah. Sarah, I was wondering with uh, with Divinity if if you ever found a point where parts of the story just weren't working at all, because again, with a story that's that's that huge and that sprawling, you know, not not every piece can be ten out of ten in theory. Uh, so what what happened if um, if you ever did get to a point where content just wasn't wasn't quite there for you? Uh, yeah, iterate uh, a lot. <laughs> um, our games spend a I would describe the way that we kind of make the game as um, like in layers of sketching. So you have like kind of your, your rough outline of what you think you want to make and you'll start kind of sketching in, um, you know, a part of the eye or part of the face and you develop that a little bit and then you'll start kind of working on the rest of the face and you'll, you'll develop all that and flesh it out a bit till it looks pretty good. And then maybe you'll, st I don't know if actual artists work this way, I'm just for the, for the metaphor, start kind of sketching in some details on the body and work your way through it. and as you're going, you tweak this and you tweak that, and that doesn't look quite how you wanted it to look, so you'll erase and try again. And we'll spend a lot of time going over and over the same material um, because something's not quite right. And it's happened before that we'll get, um, you know, maybe to the 80% mark of where we wanted a region to be. We're kind of ready to move it forward into the hardening state, and it'll just be like, this isn't fun. Like, whatever we've done, whatever direction we've taken, this is not fun anymore. So we've got to um, take the chisel back out and, um, poke some new holes and, and craft a little bit more. So really just endless iteration, I'd say, until it gets to that click point where you play it and you're like, ah, yes, this is what I was after. And then then you move on. That's great. And it's it's one of those things as well where sometimes you don't have that luxury, do you, if, if, if a game is quite late in development. Um, and Ian, I know that certainly we've, we've worked on games in the past where sometimes a whole section from a game might get dropped or, or, or a key feature. Um, have you got any kind of, I guess, advice for, for bridging that gap if, if anyone finds themselves in that position where some content unfortunately has to be cut? Um, let go, <laughs> I guess. Let, uh, it's that kill your darlings thing, isn't it? Um, I think the most important thing to remember with with that, and actually this, I think this covers a lot of things in games, is that it doesn't matter how beautiful all your design documents are and all your world lore and all of that stuff and the stories which never quite make it. Um, what matters is what the player sees, plays, experiences and the, the model that they build up in their head of the world and, and how it works. So you paper over the cracks, um, you, you, you pull out the, the stuff which isn't uh, working and often you're pulling it out for a, well, either you pull it out because it's just not working in the story and, and then you you have to find ways to stick a, stitch the story together but generally you're pulling it out for a really good reason and the story suddenly clicks into place when you've done that and that's always good um, or you have to pull it out for production reasons um, there isn't enough budget there isn't enough time um, and at that point it's just all hands on deck everybody being um, massively uh, creative and <laughs> doing whatever they can to, 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 yeah, to, to, to paper over those cracks. That said, by the time you get to that phase in game, 
um, you often have a pretty mature tool set that everybody's working with uh, and also everybody involved has a pretty good idea of what they're doing on, on the game, the effect that they're trying to create and, and the things that, that they are capable of doing in a much shorter time. So those replacements are often uh, are actually really good <laughs> and really fitting with the theme of the game because everybody's all heading in the same direction by that stage. A lot of early stuff gets gets thrown out. It doesn't quite fit. It's it's uh, all over the place. But by the time you are having to cut, um, everything tends to be working pretty well, and everybody's in tune with it. Yeah. Um, we're we're gonna have to jump to some questions because we are perilously close on time. Doesn't time fly when you're having fun? Um, um, so we've got a question. If I try to pronounce. Uh, a surname I'm going to get it horrifically wrong. So, a question from Ben: uh, What would you say is the cardinal sin, or at least a common mistake, when it comes to games writing? Uh, anyone want to jump in with uh, the first cardinal sin of games writing that springs to mind? I can leap in with a quick one: uh, too many words. <laughs> By which I mean, um, uh, players are engaged in playing the game, they're not reading a novel, uh, and there is a tendency to overwrite, um, and there is a tendency to try and put all the facts down because you want the player to be uh, absolutely informed as to what's going on. Um, they won't read those, they won't even listen to all of those if they're in the middle of, of um, you know, so caught up in the game. So um, trimming everything down so it's, so it's really lean and mean and is getting across character and is getting across important facts and then anything else is gravy really i say that's something that comes with experience as well I, I know that my impulse as a junior writer was to think oh my words are precious they must be there but of course a game is so much more than just talking and conversations and text and yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. uh sarah shallow have you got any uh any cardinal sins of games writing that spring to mind um, i suppose jumping off that and the too many words. I think the thing I've learned um, working at Massive, obviously a completely different scale um, of uh, game production, is understanding, having empathy for your, um, for the people on other teams and understanding their pressures um, and how your work impacts that. Um, so I, yeah, I think that's um, maybe something is like, uh, yeah, I can rephrase it as a cardinal sin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I found that's really super important and being able to work with those teams, so whether it's audio or level designers and just like understanding what they need and how to communicate with, with them is a really important skill. Yeah. Actually, that's, there's a, a good segue onto this, this next question. Um, so Sarah, this, this might be a good one for you here. Uh, Max asks, how do you best communicate your ideas with other teams, such as game design, art, this is et cetera, but will include animation and audio and all the other amazing A's. Uh, yeah, how, how do you best communicate uh, your ideas and give them what they need, I guess? Um, my favorite way, I guess, to do this is to sneak up to someone, whether on Slack or in person and say, so I've got this idea and kind of um, explain what you want to do and, and collaborate because the other teams are uh, very often as soon as you kind of explain what you want they're instantly going to have their own ideas about how best to convey that and how they can use their particular craft to make this come to life and the best moments um, I've worked on are always extremely collaborative with all the teams and that kind of um, 
energy, make something really uh, alive and feel really good. Um, so that's the kind of fun bits. And then otherwise, uh, with a great amount of detail and um, some kind of trackable <laughs> software so that you can go and find back all your, your tickets, um, I guess. Yeah. Um, another question that we've got here from uh, Charles. Uh, what are the types of storytelling media have influenced your work, particularly books, film, theater, etc.? What kinds of things do you find yourselves taking from them? Now, I know I certainly have a few go-tos, but uh, I'm not on the panel, so I'd be very curious to hear uh, if anyone wants to jump in, what, what would be your go-tos? Um, well, I think particularly on Before I Forget, um, we looked at, oh yeah, one of the things, films that um, I said to the team um, to look at um, in terms of art uh, was Up. Um, the Pixar film because they establish um, that that romance of those the two characters the old man and um, you know his his sort of flashback romance in the beginning they establish that so beautifully and you're so invested and that was basically you know the, the whole point of this story of, of before I forget was you have to be invested in this relationship otherwise it's just going to completely fall apart. So um, yeah, so that was something we put on mood boards for the concept artist and um, the 2D artists and stuff. And something I looked at uh, in terms of how did they tell that story? How did they make that so effective with no dialogue? And yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's arguably the most heartbreaking 10 minutes in, in modern cinema. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's, 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 it's beautifully done. And I think that's that's also kind of speaks to Ian's point earlier about how you don't necessarily need words to create the feelings to create those experiences and, and, and those memories really um yeah, yeah I, th I think it sort of segues off that a little bit um into uh, that's how you use fewer few words um and it's part of the collaboration that sarah was talking about is you take them out of the words and you push them into the environment you push them into the music sound um you know everything you can and and up is a absolutely glorious um example of that um just on the on the types uh, i've got a, a sort of non-answer which is every type <laughs> by which i mean um i found it incredibly valuable from a narrative design and writing point of view to just go and study every single medium that you can to try everything to have a bit of experience of theater design to have a bit of experience and learn why cinematography does what it does um and how it does it and and uh, and fiction and you know everything um, and then similarly within the game team themselves have a clue how the artists work um, have a clue how the coders work try and uh, cross discipline it all because the narrative design sits at the junction of all of those fields and I think games is I wouldn't say it's unique but it, it is one of the fields where all of the disciplines from all of these different um, areas come together uh, in, a, in a pretty unique way, I think, actually. Um, and that's the best thing about it, honestly. That collaboration is the best thing about it. But that means you draw from every field and every type of medium you can because um, you're voraciously devouring everything and chewing it up and spitting it out as a game feature somewhere. I love as well that you, you have a cat that I believe has just joined you to, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to say hello. Which, <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, it's a story. It's my favorite topic. Um, <laughs> Okay, so uh, we are very close to being out of time. So uh, I'll start with Sarah quickly, please. Uh, what is a story beat or writing moment or thing 
that you are most proud of in your career or personal work? And this is a question from uh, Tallulah. Um, yeah, any, any particular bit of writing that you're just especially proud of? Uh, yes, like the, the whole of Original Sin 2 was a really um, joyful and creatively like switched on kind of process. So the entire game I, I love and I'm very proud of, but if, I guess if I have to be specific, I'll trot out the thing I always say because it's the truth. Um, but the character Lisa that I mentioned earlier um, for Original Sin 2, uh, she has a moment at the end of the game, um, spoiler alert if anyone doesn't want to hear what happens at the end of the game, but um, she confronts this being that's been um, haunting her throughout the entirety of the game and blocking her from being able to sing. And when she finally defeats it, she busts out this like mystical ghost lute and sings a song that she's been trying to sing throughout the whole game and hasn't been able to. And there's music and VFX and uh, animation and a song. And um, it's very interdisciplinary, as we were saying earlier, and I'm very, very proud of that. Uh, Shella, same question to you, please. Oh, wow, that's um, really difficult to answer. <laughs> um, maybe, um, maybe when you pick up the umbrella, I still like the line that she says when you pick up the umbrella in the co closet, which sometimes people actually miss, so I'm always a little bit sad when they miss the umbrella, um, because uh, it it's, uh, alludes to the moment when they meet and she says, something like um, we walked, like he holds the umbrella up for her because it's raining in the park and she says we walked slowly even though the rain got heavier and it just kind of sums up that sort of meeting sort of romantic moment. Yeah and that, that, that closeness yeah yeah that's fantastic. Um, Ian how about you? Have you got uh, one oh particular dear. bit of writing? <laughs> um, I, I, I do but it's not out yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we've been we've been working on something um, with uh, Frictional for about five years now, um, and uh, it will be out um, sometime not that long from now. Um, without going into de any detail, but yeah, sure. we put an awful lot into that. Um, something which is out uh, is the story that I've repeatedly told, so I won't tell uh, in any depth here uh, of a live event where we. Uh, had uh, somebody jump out of a first floor window and vanish before they hit the ground. That was a, an event which, uh, yeah, th th that took quite a lot of setup and quite a lot of winding people up through some very careful writing and narrative design before we got to that point. And that's that's the one I keep telling because it's a great example. Correct me if I'm wrong, there's uh, details of that on your Medium page, is that correct? Yes, yes, yeah, I, I, I write too much, sorry. There's lots of words on the Medium page. Well, that's that's a neat segue uh, into uh, having to wrap up, I'm afraid. Um, so, yes, that does wrap up our time here. Um, panelists, you've been fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, where can people find you online if they want to look up your Medium blogs or, or find you on Twitter or things like that? Uh, Shelley, would you like to go first? Yeah, um, so I'm on Twitter at Shella Ramanan. Um, if you Google me, you'll get um, my articles I wrote as um, as a games journalist, which is what I was before I was a, a narrative designer. And at Three Gold Games, got our game, and you can buy it now on Steam and Switch. Me. That's great. And uh, yes, it, it, before I forget, it is available on uh, all good stores, but. It, yes, it lots is, of stores. But yeah. itch, it, itch is definitely the preferred one uh, for reasons. Sarah, where can people find you online? 
Well, I'm not online too much, um, but uh, I'm, I'm on Twitter at Pretty Cool Guy, um, but I'm mostly just retweeting memes. Um, that's not too interesting, but the interesting stuff is probably um, on Steam, if you look up Larian Studios, um, the whole oeuvre is there, and that's probably where the work is. Nice, nice. Always, always appreciate, always appreciate a plug. Uh, Ian, Ian, where can yep. we find you online? Uh, you can find me at Wild Winter uh, on Twitter or on Medium, and there's a lot on Medium about uh, things like the moment-based design thing I was talking about earlier and a bunch of other uh, theoretical stuff, which I hope will be useful to somebody. Absolutely. Uh, and as for me, I am at underscore Giles Armstrong on Twitter. Uh, my website is gilesarmstrong.com. Um, and of course, be sure to keep an eye on BAFTA and BAFTA Games for details of future events, initiatives, and masterclasses like this one. Um, everyone, thank you for watching, Marsha. Thank you so much for the captions. I'm so sorry how quickly I spoke at the beginning. Uh, and um, yeah, everyone, thanks for watching and we will see you next time. Thanks very much, everyone. Stay safe. Bye.